0: Welcome to the Life Christian Church podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread his love in ever-widening circles. Uh, My name is Ben Stapley. I'm the executive pastor here. And uh, if I've never introduced myself to you now, consider this an introduction. Also, I'd love to connect with you guys as well. So if I haven't met you, please connect with me after the service in the lobby. Uh, If you're new, don't worry. I'm new. I've only been here for four months and it's been great so far. I love the job and more important than the job itself, my family and I have loved the sense of community that we've received here at TLCC. Me and my wife feel loved on by you guys and accepted here and my kids love port. They're very excited for the movie tonight happening down there at four o'clock. So thank you for inviting us in and inviting me to speak with you this morning. We're going to be jumping into a passage found in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you wanted to open your Bibles and follow along now, that would be great. We're going to be looking at that. You can grab your physical Bible, grab an app. If you don't have either, don't worry. It's going to be on the screen behind me. But before we jump into the passage, let me give you a little bit of context of where we are coming from in relationship to this passage in the series that we're in. We're in a message series called Greater Than. And we've been looking about how Jesus is greater than everything. First of all, for the first century readers who got this text, how he was greater than what they had. He was greater than angels. He was greater than the high priest. He was greater than the sacrificial system. Jesus was greater for everything that they had around them. And that still holds true for us today. Jesus is still greater than in our lives. So we're going to be exploring that. The beautiful thing about this passage is not only that truth, but it is very, very encouraging and has a lot of application for us regardless of where we are on the spiritual path. So I'm excited to jump into it with you guys. Let's read the passage and then go from there. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Since we have a great high priest... We start here, and before we can even compare Jesus to the high priest, we need to remind ourselves of, what is a high priest again? If you're not aware, don't worry. Let me give us a crash course of what a high priest is so you know who Jesus is being compared to. So before this, Israel had a great religious system established. They had a high priest who was the representative that would interact on their behalf before God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would come into their sanctuary, um, and sorry, into their tabernacle. And their tabernacle was kind of like their religious gathering place. It's their version of church, for lack of a better term. And he would come into the tabernacle, and then beyond coming into the tabernacle, he would actually come into the holies of holies, a place where only he could go. And he could only go there on one day of the year. Then when he entered into the holies of holies, he would sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the altar on his behalf to make himself pure before God. And after he did that, he would atone for the nation and sprinkle blood on the altar on their behalf as well. So that is the high priest. And from a Jew who would have been reading this text, that was their highest they had, the best they had to offer. And the author's saying, we have something way better than that. We have something greater than that. We have a great high priest couple of reasons why. There's some limitations that the priest faced, which is funny because it's actually identified in their garment and what they wore. So the priest went in and they had the beautiful robe adorned with precious jewels, but at the bottom there was bells sewn into the hem of the garment. And unless you're Santa Claus, you don't have bells on your garments. It's just kind of weird to be walking around jingling as you walk. But the high priest needed this because when he went into the the holies of holies, there were no mirrors, there were no doors, you could not see what was happening in there. So when the high priest went into there, and the high priest did not atone for their sin first, they were likely to be struck dead by God, because they were no longer seen as holy in his presence without that atonement. So how would the people know the guy died? They literally had to listen. We hear the bells, we hear the bells, we hear the bells, we don't hear the bells. That's not good. That's not good. They would be listening in to see if the person was still walking around in the holies of holies. Beyond this bell that indicates a limitation within the high priest, that they could be struck dead by God, they would oftentimes tie a rope around their foot as well. It's kind of odd accessory, right, to have a rope tied around your ankle. Why would you have Because if he were to be struck dead, who would go in and get them? The high priest was in there, and they were not righteous in God's eyes, and they were struck dead, I'm not going to be the one going in and getting them out of there, right? I'll be the guy with the rope dragging their dead body out of there. I'll do that job. I won't be the one going in there. So this, this high priest, even as great as the high priest was, still had plenty of limitations. They had to wear bells. They had to have this rope, indicating that even their best of them didn't really stand a chance in front of God in terms of their purity that they could bring to the table. So the author is saying, they have a high priest in Jesus that is better. The author continues to give additional support and rationale as to why Jesus is greater. He's a, he's a high priest. He's a son of God. And an interesting thing here, he's gone through the heavens. It's an interesting phrase, gone through the heavens. I don't know, but you have, I've gone through the clouds. I've flown on a plane before. I've gone through the clouds. We have been able to send people to the moon. We've sent people all the way to the moon. Some of our billionaires would like us to go to Mars and go that far, but none of us have gone through the heavens. The time Hebrews was written was just shortly after Jesus died, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. So there would have still been eyewitnesses that perhaps would have seen that themselves, that 1st ten account of Jesus ascending, going through the heavens. That is the type of high priest that we have. We have, my first point, we have Jesus. Look at the beginning of the verse, since we have this great high priest. I encourage you, if you grab the life notes, you'd like to follow along, fill it out as we go along. It's also on our app as well. But we have that great high priest indicated there in verse 14. Let's read the rest of 14 and see where it goes. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. So our first point is we have Jesus. Our second point is let's hold on to Jesus. The Greek verb here for holding on isn't a weak verb. It's not something mamby-pamby. It's something that's strong, something where you need to clench and grasp and desperately hold on to and not let go for fear of the consequences. My brother and I worked construction for a couple of years after he finished college, and I was gearing up to become an electrician, and after shocking myself a number of times and electrocuting myself, I realized it was not the profession for me. (laughs) Ultimately, I gear changed and I've become a pastor, but I was doing construction with him, we worked in a big warehouse similar to the one you're going to see behind me here. It was a big old warehouse, 100 feet long, 50 feet wide, 50 feet high, and it had a huge crane at the top. And what we did is we'd build these mobile units, and when we were done with them, the crane would come on down and it would hold onto the, 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 the construction that we'd built. And it would take it to the end of the warehouse, put it on an 18-wheeler, and it would take that off to a job site. And so one day, after everyone else had left and we were closing up shop, I saw that crane, and I was like, hey, let's, let's have a little fun with the crane. And so I, my brother brought the crane down, and uh, I said, hey, you know, bring me up about five feet and kind of swing me around. So I, I held onto the crane, and he brought me up and swung me around. I had a great time. And then I came down, and then my little brother was like, hey, man, like I, I want to do that. So I was like, great. And being a, an older brother, I was like, I'm going to have some fun with this too. And so, uh, and so he held onto the crane, and I raised him up not five feet not 10 feet. I reached about 15 or 20 feet. Um, and he was holding on to that crane. He was desperately holding on, and he was also yelling at me to bring him back down as well, uh, which I ultimately did, and he got down safe. But he was grasping onto that crane, because he realized there's some consequences if he lets go. He's going to get injured if he falls. He was desperately holding on to the crane to the same degree that he and I were holding on to the crane as we were elevated. That's that same verb, that same tense that the author here is saying, hold on to your confession. Grasp onto it greatly. Do not let go. This is not a light and an insignificant thing. Hold on to your confession. So then it begs the question, well, what is the confession that they were holding on to? What was the confession these readers would have known? There's a lot of different confessions that are out there nowadays, you know, confessions, mantras, mo- mottos, um, mottos that we live our life by. Something that's a, a pithy statement that we kind of engineer and gear the rest of our days and our lives around. Some good and some not so good. Uh, there's one out there that you probably know is popular a couple of years ago, YOLO. right? You only live once. right? It's a, it's a good model, the sense that we can seize and get the most out of our day. It actually kind of reminds me of the other model similar to it in Latin, sounds impressive, um, but carpe diem, seize the day, this idea that we have a limited life and a limited time here on earth, um, U.S. males, I looked it up this morning, U.S. males have on average 76 years on life expectancy, it's a, it's a limited time, we've got to maximize it. It's a good confession, it's a good mantra, problem is it's limited, it's not a great one, because it's, it's looking at your life within 76 years. For females, I think it's like 82. Oh. Part of the reason is because guys go up on cranes and we do foolish things like that. But it's looking at life in a limited scope. Instead of seeing our life in its eternity, in its eternal perspective. And If you viewed life that way, you wouldn't have to have a motto of YOLO and only living life once and seizing the day. You would be able to see that we have an eternity by which we can live our lives. There's other good mottos as well. There's probably the one we may be familiar with, the serenity prayer that's been made famous by Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a good one as well. It says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a good mantra. It's a good confession, but it's not great because it's pretty singularly focused, right? God grant me. It's very internalized in terms of what you are getting So again, what is the confession that these people would be holding on to? What is the confession in light of that that we need to hold on to as well? Well, the Apostles' Creed would have been codified at a similar time in which the book of Hebrews was written. The Apostles' Creed, if you're not aware of it, I'll read a couple of lines that begins it, and it's super powerful. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. This would have been a pop- popular confession out there. So, when the author is saying hold tight unto a confession, he's saying don't just hold tight unto something that you only live once. Don't hold on to a confession like that. Hold on to a confession that's beefy, something that you can build your life, not just the life now, but your life, eternal life around. Hold on to that type of confession. So, my challenge for us is what is your confession? What are you holding on to? And if you don't have one, I encourage you, memorize the Apostles' Creed. It's just a couple of sentences long. It will help frame your day as you go about it. If you're not good with memorization, don't worry. Just print that off on a three-by-five card. Put it on the mirror when you shave or put your makeup on in the morning and recite that to yourself. Remind yourself that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, And Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, a little more powerful than YOLO, right? That is our confession. That is what we get to hold on to. We get a chance to hold on to Jesus. Why do we get a chance to hold on to Jesus? Because Jesus holds on to us. Jesus holds on to us. Let's look in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus here offers us sympathy, which is a beautiful thing because it's in short supply. It's in short supply. Have you ever confessed a weakness or a limitation to somebody else and you have not gotten sympathy, but you've gotten a a negative response? There's a lot of different negative ways in which we can respond or people respond to us when we share a weakness with them. And one of the ways is false pity. Right? Someone actually doesn't care about what you're... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's too bad. sorry. The thing about this false pity is um, somebody's actually not sympathizing with you. They don't have an emotional connection with who you are. And so because of that, they need to over- over-dramatize their actions. Like, you can actually tell when someone's... In another conversation, when someone's demonstrating self-pity, you don't have to hear it. You just see it, right? And you're like, why, why are they... Why are they being a caricature? Why are they over-dramatizing? Mean, because they don't actually feel it. They need to kind of show it. So sometimes we, we express weaknesses, and that's how people respond. Sometimes they respond with mockery, right? You, you say, I'm struggling in this area. I have a weakness in the area. And someone's like, wow. Wow. Really, bro? Really? That's how you struggle? Come on. I thought better of you. Really? And they mock you because of you showing vulnerability towards them. Or my favorite slash worst is the, is the one-upmanship. When you express a limitation and something that you're struggling with and someone says, really, that's what you're struggling with? Well, you should, you should know what I struggle with. This is, this is what I struggle with. You think that's bad. <laughs> Let me tell you what I struggle with. And they one-up you. Jesus doesn't do any of those things, right? He doesn't give you false pity. He doesn't give you mockery. He doesn't give you one-upmanship. Well, really, your, your cancer's difficult? Well, I went to the crucifixion, so how about that? He doesn't doesn't do this weird one-upmanship that we feel the need to do with each other. Jesus says, tell me more. Tell me more about that. I want to hear more. I want to help you. He gives us legitimate sympathy. Why is he able to give us sympathy? Because he's being tested like we have been. He's being tested. It's interesting because... Oftentimes, when we think about Jesus, um, Jesus who was both fully God and fully man, we oftentimes highlight his divinity and downplay his humanity. Uh, he was God, he was God. We kind, of, we kind of forget, at least I do, the fact that Jesus was a man. The beautiful thing in this passage is it puts those things on even level and it brings up his humanity and reminds us that Jesus was tempted like we were. Some of you here or some of us online may be struggling and saying, yeah, but I don't really believe that. You might be coming to this verse and to, to the service into this church with a cynic's or a critic's posture and heart. If that's the case, we welcome you and we are glad you are here and we are glad you are bringing that disposition with you. The reason I can say that is because Jesus allowed people who are cynical and critical and that type of disposition around him he even had somebody in his inner circle, Thomas, who, because of his doubts, was given the nickname, not a favorable one, Doubting Thomas. That's how we refer to Thomas now. Thomas probably did incredible things. We just know, like, know one few things about him in the Bible that he doubted, and now, forever now, he's doubting Thomas, right? Kind of feel bad for the guy. But Thomas doubted. When Jesus was risen again, the disciples told him, Yeah, Jesus has risen again, and said, Ah, not until I put my hands in his nail marks will I believe it. And hearing this, did Jesus get angry? Get infuriated? Indignant cast him out of the disciples and said, "You're out of the posse. You got to leave now. You don't believe me?" No. Jesus said, "Okay. Let's do it." Jesus presented himself. He meets us in our limitations. He meets us in our weaknesses. And so if you have that same posture and that same spirit this morning, Jesus is meeting you where you're at. You might be looking at this person and saying, was he really tempted in every way that we are? How can that be? You might be saying, "Huh, you know what, like um, road rage. Did he have, you know, I get road rage. I drive uh, 78, I drive the, the turnpike, I get it pretty easily. Did Jesus, so he didn't have road rage, but did he suffer with anger and rage? probably. You know, He he interacted with the 12 disciples, one of them who doubted him. So in terms of actually being tempted in a similar way, yeah, he was tempted in a similar way to the way we are. Uh, We're coming upon April 18th. Sorry to bring a downer to the room, but it's tax season. April 18th is when we need to file our taxes. So we're looking at that, and was, was Jesus ever tempted with tax fraud, maybe kind of cutting the corners, maybe not reporting things as he should? Not with tax fraud per se, but... The temptation underneath that being the temptation of deceit, sure. He was a businessman. He was a carpenter. He needed to make money, and so I'm sure there were times where he maybe wanted to overcharge for an item or pretend it was a solid table set, knowing that one of the chairs had a wonky leg. He was tempted with deceit. Was he tempted with Internet pornography? No, he wasn't tempted with that. The Internet was not invented then. He was not tempted with that, but was he tempted with lust? Sure he was. The height of his popularity, he had 10,000 people coming out when he spoke. And I'm sure one of those people in the 10,000 probably came to him on the side, said, Jesus, why don't we hook up? You're you're popular. I'm beautiful. Why Why don't we? And I'm sure that lust and his ability to be tempted by it and act upon it was present in his life. So in every way in which we are tempted, he has been tempted as well. You might be sitting in the room and saying, which is, which is comforting for us as a, as a critic and the cynic, it's also comforting for us in the room, where we might be saying, there's nobody else who knows my weaknesses, nobody else who's tempted in the unique way that I am, and that might be true. I might not know how you're tempted, you might not know how I'm tempted. We probably are tempted by different things. So there might not be someone in this room. There might not be someone with us online right now who's tempted in that unique way. But the Bible tells us that there's somebody in heaven who's tempted in the unique way that we are, and that's Jesus. Jesus was tempted in the same unique ways that we are. And the best thing about this verse as it concludes is he did it without sin. He did it without sin. He didn't falter. Not once, not ever, he did it without sin. That is our great high priest. That is why he is greater than. The Israelites had their high priest, and they hoped, they hoped he wasn't struck dead. We have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are and did not sin. My last point is this. Jesus invites us in. Jesus invites us in. He holds on to us, but beyond just holding on to us, he invites us in. Verse 16 says this Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a new Batman movie coming out. Seems like there's a new Batman movie coming out every year at this point. I don't know why it's so popular. There's a new one coming out. The actor um, is Robert Pattinson, who will be playing Batman. Be interested to see how he does. And, and transitions into that role. There's been a lot of actors who've played the role of Batman over the years. There's, there's Christian Bale, uh, there's Michael Keaton, there's, there's a lot of different guys who've played Batman. But my favorite, my, my personal favorite, is the OG. It's the original, it's Adam West. Adam West, anyone see the original series or reruns of the series? Yes, some of us are aging and dating ourselves, that's fine. It's a good show, it's a lot of reruns of it. But if you haven't seen it, let me give you some backstory into it. Batman had a lot of different devices on him, which made him a unique character to fight crime. He had a bat belt, and in the bat belt, he was always able to pull something out unique to face the enemy. So he would have a bat boomerang, or a bat grappling hook, or everything is always bat something. He had a, he had a, one time he was facing a shark, and he had a bat anti-shark spray I kid you not, there's an episode, feel free to do a deep dive later on, a bat anti-shark spray, just in case he was fighting crime and a shark attacked him, he was ready to go with that thing. So he had all these unique devices on him. He also had a unique device in his bat cave, and it was the bat phone, the bat phone. Bat phone was there for him to receive a call from Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Gordon was the, the police commissioner of the city Gotham, and he faced he was trying to face crime and fight crime, but oftentimes he came up limited in his ability to fight crime with these super villains like the Joker or Riddler running around. And when he had a need, he was able to access the back phone and give Batman a call and get access to him. He would pick it up, and it's kind of interesting. Batman was always ready to answer it. Like he was always ready to go and answer the phone. You know, he's never in the bathroom, he was just always ready to answer the phone <laughs> in the TV show. Uh, kind of unique. But so he, Batman was always able to pick it up. And he got to a point where he had the Bat phone in his back car at some point. So he's always always accessible. And then the commissioner would reach out and say, Hey Batman, I'm having a hard time. Can you help me out here? Batman would then jump in, solve the crime. The Cape Crusader would come to the rescue and take care of what needed to be taken care of. In a in a very, very similar way. We have a bat phone. We have something in which we can at any time pick it up, call, and get our help that is needed. That is what the voice, that is what this verse is pointing towards. We have this ability to pick this up, and again, to compare it to the high priest, they had one day a year, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where they could pick that up, and the high priest could represent them. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying, you can do this whenever. Any need you have, any time you need it, you can pick up and have instant access to God. Yeah, yeah. The verse goes on and tells us that we have a confidence when we can approach the throne, a confidence when we go. It's talking about the language that you would have with a friend, as a citizen to citizen, the the boldness, the frankness, the openness that we would talk with one another, that's the same way in which we can approach the throne, Which which is interesting because that's not how we approach positions of power right? We don't approach positions of power with confidence, openness, frankness. When you go to your boss, are those the terms that you would describe a conversation? Probably not. Actually, some of us might work in a workplace in which when we go to our boss, they're not even on the same floor of us. We have to like go up a floor to meet where they are. That's not confidence-inducing. If I have to take an elevator or stairs just to go to my boss, and you go to their office, their desk is two or three times bigger than yours. It feels like you're sitting behind a tank, and then I love this power play as well. You'll sit down, your boss will sit down, and then you'll sit down and you'll be about six inches shorter than them. Like they've sawed and sanded down the chair legs just to let you know exactly where you are in relationship to them, a little bit lower, right? None of this is confidence-inducing. The author is saying when you go to the throne room of God, you can go in with confidence. Compare that with our, with our leaders, our presidents. How do we approach them as well? During a, a political scrum when they're giving a press conference, and they, they grant us to take questions afterwards. Um, how do reporters respond, right? It's a madhouse. Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. They're yelling over one another to be heard. And then it's based upon the president saying, I will listen to you, or I'll listen to you, and giving them that time of day. That's how we, that's how we approach our presidents, not with confidence, but with competition. I need to out-yell the other person so that I'm ultimately, hopefully, heard. Then rewind the clock. How did the first century readers, how would they have approached their thrones? They would not. It would be on them to think that they could have a, an audience with their rulers. That's completely foreign to them. Or if they did, if they were brought in front of the rulers, it would have been because of discipline, and possibly their life would have been on the line. So this idea that we can come to God with confidence is completely foreign to them. We can approach with confidence. I like this tense here. This tense in the verb is we can draw near. It's a continual drawing near. We can continually come before God. A couple of weeks ago, we were having suffer as a family, and I was there, and I was there physically, but I wasn't there emotionally. I wasn't there mentally. I was thinking about something else. My daughter, Violet, who's nine, very astute, takes after her mom. She said, Daddy, where are you? where are you? You're not here. I know you're somewhere. It's clearly you're not here with us. Where are you? Uh, and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm thinking about a problem at work. I'm trying to solve it in my mind. Um, I apologize. And her response is, well, why didn't you go to Jesus with it? Why don't you take to him about it? Why don't you pick up the phone and give him a call because you can do this whenever. You can call him whenever. Why don't you do this? Come forward with confidence, saying, come forward, continually draw near. Not just once and done, not just Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, not just Sunday morning, right? We can do this continually. The beautiful thing here is when we come to the throne, it's not just a throne, but it's a throne of grace. A throne of grace. Recently, our church online campus pastors, Christian and Amanda, got a chance to go to Buckingham Palace. See a photo of here? taking the obligatory selfie. Uh, they got a chance to get to the palace, but they didn't get a chance to get in. They got to the gated perimeter of it, but actually didn't get beyond that onto the property ground or into the throne room. But had they gotten into the throne room, it would have looked something like this. It would have been a throne room of opulence, a throne room of grandeur, a throne room of power and prestige. It would have been a throne room that indicated its value. God's throne room indicates value. Our value. This throne room is saying, I'm important, right? The queen's saying, I'm important, listen to me. When we go to the throne room of grace, God's saying, You're important. You're important. You're important. He gives us grace. Beyond giving us grace, He gives us mercy. He gives us grace and mercy. What's the difference between the two? It's unique, but there is a difference between the two. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is not deserving what you get. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is not deserving what you get. Let me unpack that. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Well, what do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve death. We deserve alienation. Our sin has separated us from God. That is what we deserve. Because of mercy, we don't get that. We get something different. Grace gives us things that we should not receive. What are those things that we should not receive? Acceptance, forgiveness, sonship, daughtership brought into the family, gifts, blessings, support, and we get all these things because of grace and mercy. When we come to that throne, we get both. We get both. The beautiful thing is, as this verse ends, it says, when do we get these things? We get these things in our time of need. Our time of need. When is the time of need? A time of need for the proud? For the proud, it's never. For the humble, it's whenever. If you're a proud person, you are not going to come to the throne of grace. You're never going to admit your time of need. But if you're humble enough, it's whenever you need it. You can pick up that phone and receive grace. It may be for you today as a couple, you may be doing something small and insignificant, like trying to figure out what restaurant to go to for lunch as you're driving on out, and you're making a mountain of a molehill. And you just need to say, you know what, let's go to where you want to eat. You may need a time of need, and you may need some grace for something in relationship to your spouse today or this week. When you do, rely on God for that. Reach out for that grace that you need. You may be going into your work week this week and you may need grace in time of need in relationship to a coworker, someone who's maybe underperforming and that you would love to just tear them apart. But you know that ultimately that's not gonna help them develop as an employee. That's not gonna help them get from A to B. And in fact, you need to be patient with them. You need to teach them and coach them and train them and help them develop. And you may need some grace and mercy in your time of need. Or maybe it's not with other people, maybe it's with yourself. This idea that God is going to meet us with our weaknesses. It's a very holistic term, that term weakness. The sense that he wants to help us in any of our weaknesses. Relational weaknesses, mental weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, physical weakness. And you may be struggling with an ailment. Something within your body that you know, you know cognitively it's a part of the fall. And ultimately one day it will be rectified. But right now you just need some grace and mercy in time of need and you're like, God, I know you love me. I know you care for me, but you're not here right now. And I just need one of your representatives here on earth to meet me and to give me some grace and mercy. I need someone to reach out and to call me, someone to tell me it's going to be okay, someone to provide a meal, someone to love me here in the flesh. Can you give me some grace and mercy? This is my time of need. Whatever your ailment is, whatever your need is, reach out. The beautiful thing is beyond making individual calls to heaven and doing that by ourselves, we don't just have to call by ourselves. We can, we can merge in other people into the phone calls through prayer. Uh, we do that here at TLCC, TLCC through our prayer wall. If you've never visited our website, you go to tlcc.org prayer, you'll see our prayer wall in which we're able to post any prayer requests that you have. You can write it down, post it on the wall, and someone will pray over your prayer request. And then you can also go there and pray over someone else's prayer request as well. You can do a corporate conversation with God through prayer. We also do that at the end of every one of our services. Every one of our services, we have prayer partners on the side here that would love to pray for you. You might be daunted by picking up the phone, saying, I'm going to pick it up. I don't know what to say. I want to do it, but I don't know how to do it. We have people that will do that with you if you're struggling in that regard. Another great way to receive prayer here at TLCC is through our life groups. Not just getting it once in on the prayer wall or once after service, but being a part of a group with people that you receive prayer with over days, weeks, months, and years. I encourage you to check that if you've never done that and if you need prayer during your time of need. I want to conclude by reading a great passage from John Calvin that kind of summarizes where we've been going and highlights the beauty of the throne of grace. Read along with me as we go through it. The basis of this confidence, the confidence that we have, is that the throne of God is not marked by naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, which is the awfulness of his throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our mind of all fears, the apostle clothes it with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. I'm going to call the worship team up now. And as we do, we're going to, yes... That is a throne of grace that we have. And to make it real simple for us as we're concluding, you got two potential action steps for yourself. If you are a believer, access that throne of grace. Pick up the phone and make the phone call and ask for that mercy that you need. And if you've yet to follow Christ, if you've yet to become a believer, I encourage you to do the same thing. Reach out for the first time and make that call and access him. We have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. As he's gone through the heavens, he's paved a way for us to join him as well. Let's take advantage of that today. Let's take advantage of that now.